In just a second, I'm actually going to ask Pete to share a little more with you. Um, last week, we, we started into the book of 1 John. And one of the things that we, we found there was this idea, this invitation into fellowship that John speaks about as, as a critical component to our discipleship. Fellowship with the, the person, the triune persons of God, but also fellowship with one another. And so throughout the month of September, as we start into a new school year, as Sunday school is resuming, we're also inviting you personally to think about ways that you are connected or ways maybe you could get more connected here with one another at JCC. And so we're going to be highlighting each week uh, a different way that you might choose to, to get connected um, and, and to, to think about that as a, a part of the way we do discipleship. You might have seen as you came in or been handed one of these this morning. So this kind of outlines the three ideas or three options um, that you might choose to follow Jesus together with someone else um, over the course of this fall. Today I'm going to ask uh, Pete to share about um, what it looks like to be part of a discipling friendship. Next week, uh, we're going to hear about what it looks like to be part of a small group. And Jessie Blake is actually going to share about some of her experiences in small groups here. And then at the end of the month, uh, Carrie Causey is going to share a little bit about her experience serving at JCC on various committees and in different roles and how that's been a part of getting connected and being in discipleship with, with others. So uh, I wanted to give Pete just a few minutes to share about what that discipling friendship looked like for him, and then also as a way for you to think about what it might look like to say yes to that um, with someone this fall. Go ahead, Pete. Well, sorry I don't have any more science experiments for you all. Um, a little over two years ago, right around the time that COVID rocked all of our worlds. Um, I stepped into the role of youth pastor here at the church, and God gave me a great gift. And that gift came in the form of a young man who showed up at our home late one evening and admitted that he was in need of help. And I want to share the story of our relationship this morning with his permission and hopefully answer the question, what can a discipleship friendship or a discipleship relationship look like? Well, as he sat in our living room that evening, he shared how he was in a difficult spot. He'd moved out of his house. He'd gotten involved with some people and activities that he shouldn't have. And he had also been reading a book by Bart Ehrman, who's a New Testament scholar turned agnostic atheist, and he had some questions about Jesus. What did Jesus really claim about himself? Did Jesus believe that he was the Son of God? And as he left our home that night, I felt like someone had just handed me a ball of yarn and said, here, can you untangle this? But I soon realized it wasn't my job to untangle the yarn. That was the Lord's work. And what he wanted me to do was to watch, to listen, and to pray. I knew I couldn't fill the role of a professional counselor. It wasn't my job to be a parent. But I did tell him, I want to hear more of your story. And those questions you're asking, let's 
ask them together. Let's search the scriptures together. So we began meeting intentionally every week. And he, as he shared more of his story, I simply listened and asked questions and reflected back what I heard. And as we began to discuss the questions he was asking, our focus slowly over weeks shifted away from Bart Ehrman's book and toward the Word of God. In his own reflections on this time, he said, I didn't feel like things changed for me in my heart until Scripture came into the picture. And soon we started to do three things. Share life, share the Word, and pray together. We began to read the Gospel of John together. We walked through John 1, observing how the coming of Jesus is the coming of light into a dark place. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John are simple, a simple question. What is it that you're seeking? That became a question for us. This led to honest, vulnerable conversation. What are the things that I'm seeking? Where am I coming to Jesus in the night, like Nicodemus, and unwilling to associate with him in the day? And I noticed something interesting began to happen. I began to be challenged by the way that the Holy Spirit was illuminating the scriptures to him. There were observations I hadn't seen, or connections that I hadn't noticed, or applications that proved challenging to me. And when stumbling upon something of that sort, I'd often say, man, that's a good word. Or I really needed to hear that today. As we came to the word together, the Lord was sharpening both of us. And so for about a year and a half, I had the pleasure of watching how and where God was at work in this young man's life. There were others that walked alongside him during this time as well. But as I think about this experience, I honestly feel like I didn't do anything. I just listened, reflected back what I was hearing, and sometimes that came in the form of a challenge. I opened the word of God, and we prayed together. I think we can often get confused about what discipleship looks like or question, what is it that I really have to offer? Or be tempted to avoid it because it feels too vulnerable or too risky. In many ways, this is an easy story to tell because it's easy to see the fruit. There are other discipleship relationships that I've had that have begun and fizzled or where I haven't as easily connected with the individual or Sometimes someone's just not quite ready to be vulnerable. But the important thing is that we come with humility, with empty hands, and that we release the outcome to the Lord, knowing that we very well might not be the one to see the fruit. We just might be the one God brings into someone's life to break up some hard soil. Well, last week, Pastor Dave talked about creating a structure for people to be part of a discipleship friendship. The table has been set. 
And the framework has been laid out 10, 10 weeks, I believe it is, roughly, in, in 1 John. And if you'd like, you'd even be able to be matched with another individual. And so I'd encourage you to take uh, this opportunity and to let the Lord challenge you and grow you through an intentional discipleship, friendship with someone in our church community. Thanks, Pete. Um, we'd love for you to, to be prayerful and thoughtful about that um, this week, over the next couple weeks. If that's something you do uh, think you might be interested in, there are these little cards. I think there are some by the entrances. There are also some in the pews next to those prayer cards. Um, you'll see there will be other cards that you can fill out the next few weeks if you want to um, respond to a small group or to service here at JCC. But if you're interested in doing what Pete's described, meeting with one other person, um, starting next week, I'll start generating just a couple really basic questions uh, from the passages we're preaching through in 1 John. And the idea would be to probably dedicate maybe 30 minutes a week. If you can do that physically, you know, meeting up for coffee or breakfast or something, great. If you can't, you know, a phone call or a Zoom call, if that's um, easier for you. But just to, to read the passage, uh, to talk about and, and kind of share at a personal level what that word might mean to you, uh, and then to pray for each other. You could just drop one of these uh, off with me or in the offering plate the next few weeks. Put your name, uh, how we can get a hold of you. If you have someone you want to do this with, someone in your small group, a friend here at JCC, maybe somebody you know outside of JCC, you can put their name in, and, and that lets us know so that we can pray for you, also so that I can put you on um, the mailing list just for these questions weekly. Uh, if you want to do it but you're not sure who to do it with, you can just check that box, please choose someone to pair me with. Uh, and we'll take whoever's interested and we'll, we'll think about how we might uh, match you up with someone else. Um, and again, the idea would just be to, to do this from now, uh, or starting sort of next week, uh, the end of September, roughly until uh, Thanksgiving. We'll, we'll finish First John right before Thanksgiving this year. So that's uh, an invitation to, to a discipling friendship. As we're thinking about uh, that invitation into fellowship and to follow Jesus together, let me invite you to open back up to 1 John. I want to spend a little time in, in the text this morning with you. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. We're going to be looking at this idea of, of light and darkness, of good news and bad news. Let me give you a second to, to find your way there to the text. Clicker doesn't seem to be working. Can you help me move that forward? There we go. Our kids, uh, one of their the things they enjoy doing is, is reading joke books, if you guys like a good joke. But you notice if you, if you get uh, joke books, often there are jokes clustered around certain sort of predictable structures, right? You have knock-knock jokes. You have chicken crossing the road jokes. And one section in certain joke books are, are good news, bad news jokes. Maybe you, you know a few of these. There's one about two guys delivering a piano to a walk-up apartment building. And they've got a, a delivery for the 10th floor. And they make it up the first nine floors, and they stop to take a break. As they're catching their breath, one of them suddenly gets a, a worried look on his face, and he says, uh-oh, I think I've got some good news and some bad news. And the other guy says, all right, give me the bad news first. 
And he says, well, I think we're in the wrong apartment building. And so the other guy says, well, then what's the good news? And he says, well, at least we only have one more floor to go. Right, that's a silly one. All right, somebody got it in the back. Or there's a joke about an antique dealer who comes over to his friend's house to look through his friend's attic to see if this guy has any, anything of value to sell. And after an hour or two, he comes down from the attic and he tells his friend, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He says, the good news is I found a Picasso and a Stradivarius up in your attic. And the guy, full of excitement, says, man, that's amazing. I'm going to be rich. What's the bad news? And he says, well, it turns out Picasso actually made really crummy violins. And Stradivarius wasn't a very good painter either. Give you a second to figure that one out if you're still thinking about it. Now, those are obviously silly and maybe not very, very funny jokes, but the, the important things, some of the most important things, some of the kind of narratives deep in our lives that, that influence the choices we make come down to how we decipher kind of what's good and what's bad news in our world, in our life. They shape our vision of reality as well. And usually in, in the shaping of our, our vision of reality, we... We either emphasize one and ignore the other, or we overemphasize the other and ignore the former. So we look at these six verses in 1 John. I think we discover that following Jesus requires us to both square with some bad news described here, but that we're to square with that bad news so that we can appropriately detect and, and actually respond to the fullness of the good news, the fullness of the gospel that John has come to proclaim and, and the reason he is writing. So I want to look at this, this passage, verses 5 through 10. Let me pray for us as we, as we read this together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you come full of grace and truth. You desire not to condemn, but to save but you come revealing, you come illuminating so that, that a greater work, a greater redemption, a greater healing and, and humanity might be released in us as we choose to follow you. So Lord Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, that the meditations and even the, the embodied responses of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, these verses. And I want you, this is your, your homework here in a couple, couple minutes, in about a minute. I'm going to ask you to identify the elements of good news and the elements of bad news you hear in these six verses. Okay? Listen for good news and bad news. Verse 5. John says, this is the message we have heard from him. From, from a God who, who in, in Jesus has come in the fullness and to bring us life, to bring us into fellowship with him. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and we now declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, 
we lie, and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word, his living word, is not in us. All right, I want to ask you to turn to one or two people next to you, whoever's kind of positioned near you in the sanctuary, and I want you to take about two minutes tops to identify. You can use the verse numbers. Where do you see good news? Where do you see bad news in this passage? Okay, go for it. All right, let's start with the good news first. Anybody, just shout out the numbers of the verses that you see good news represented here. Anybody, good news? Odd numbers. Odd, odd numbers? All right, so we've got verse 5. Do you guys agree? What else is good news? Yes, verse 7 and verse 9. Okay, we have sort of three good news statements here. And that leaves verses 6, right, verses 8, or verse 8 and verse 10 as describing bad news. So you, you sort of get a 50 50 split here. Three verses of gospel and three verses that, that warn us or, or, or indicate there's something amiss. What I want to try to do in the next few minutes, and I want to be brief because I know we're, we're already getting late today, but I want to try to, to not only sort of intellectually understand John's argument here, but I want us to think about this at a heart level, at the level of our own thoughts, the level of our own feelings, at the level of our own choices, because like I said a few minutes ago, I think actually a lot of our lives is, is sort of lived out of how deeply either we believe the good news and respond to it appropriately, or whether we sort of feel overwhelmed or paralyzed by the bad news and, and remain stuck there. What would it look like to, to, to give greater, greater reception to the good news so that we can move forward in following Jesus together? So the first piece of good news I think identified here is in verse 5. And John says, this is the message. And this is kind of a, a recurring pattern we'll see in the rest of the book. He comes back to sort of the basics, the most important things he wants to say in his letter. He says, the message that, that I have proclaimed to you, the message that every follower of Jesus must know is that God is light. And so in him there is no darkness at all. Sort of to Pete's experiment this morning, right? God does not intermix or intermingle his person, his, his presence with, with darkness. He is pure light, pure holiness. In fact, light is such a big part of the gospel, and particularly the gospel that John wanted to relay, that in the gospel of John, light comes up more than 40 times in, in the words and teachings of Jesus in that gospel. Right? It, it's everywhere in, in the good news John is proclaiming. The great theologian from the, the 20th century, John Stott, said this. He said, of statements about the essential being of God, 
what God is actually like. He said, none is more comprehensive than to say God is light. Stott says, it, it is God's nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. And that revelation is of perfect purity and majesty. So he says, we are to think of God as a personal being, infinite in all his perfections, and yet a God who desires to be known and thus has revealed himself. End quote. In the person of Jesus Christ, John is saying, right? Jesus who proclaims himself to be the light of the world. God is showing us, he's illuminating, he is revealing what he is really like. He did that by putting flesh and blood, right, to, to the gospel message. So that we could see it with our own eyes, we could touch it, we could hear it, John said at the beginning of this book. And so that, that fact that God illuminates, God reveals, God is light, is really good news. On Friday, Katie and I took a, a hike outside of Stowe, and we were up on the top of a mountain. And there's something about being in sunlight, right, that is, it, it, it speaks, it ministers to us in this deep place. Sometimes you just want to bask, you just want to lay in the sun and feel its warmth and enjoy that light. And I think that's, there's something about that in, in the, the nature of who we are, how we've been created. We're, we're created to love to be in the presence of light. That's good news, John proclaims to us, but he follows it in verse 6 with some bad news. John says, even though we are created to, to love the light and to live in the light and to, to be enlivened by the light, right, we have a history of when God reveals himself most fully to us, that we hide ourselves from that light. And that, that history goes all the way back to the beginning of our human story. Right? It goes all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis 1, right, what do we hear? But that, that in the beginning, right there, there was darkness, there was chaos, there was, there was all of this disordered darkness. But God spoke into it and he spoke light. And through the speaking of that light, then we begin to see God separating Light and darkness, separating the, the watery chaos and the dry land. And, and God forms this world full of his light so that our lives, and, and ultimately, right, the crowning act of that creation story is that he made man and woman in his image and he set them in this garden of his radiance so that we might gaze upon him, we might know him, we might walk with him. But when we get to Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve forfeiting that, that radiant goodness of Eden. And they forfeit it in order that they might walk by their own lights. Right? The serpent deceives them. And sin is ushered into our reality because we, we did not want to walk in the light as God was in the light. And the cost of that disobedience, we see in Genesis 3.8. Right? After eating of, of the forbidden tree, all Adam and Eve can see is their own nakedness. Right? 
Verse 8 says that in, in their shame and their fear, they hid from the Lord their God among the trees of the garden. And even though God came to them and, and is seeking them out, there's, there's a, a desire to pull back from his radiance, from his knowledge of them, from his presence. And it's, it's awfully difficult to be in relationship with a person you are hiding from, from a person you cannot be yourself before. And I think that's John's point here in verse 6. Right? He says, in God, there, God, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. But he says, the bad news is that if we claim to have fellowship, if we claim to have a relationship with God, and yet we remain hiding, we remain in the shadows, we remain in the darkness, John says that relationship becomes clouded with hypocrisy. John, I think, indicates that, that we could even say we believe, intellectually, we believe in the light of God. We believe in the love of God. We may even desire that light to transform us. But we can remain stuck if we continue to hide parts of who we are. Things we've done. Attitudes and desires of our hearts from the light of God. Right? And, and typically, like Adam and Eve, we do that because we are ashamed or because we are afraid of what would happen in the light. What would be revealed. Right? There, are, there are parts of who I am, choices that I make as a, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a person, as a friend, that I'd rather not disclose to anyone. Right? There are moments of impatience. There are uncharitable thoughts I have. There are uncharitable words I speak about other people. There are times where I'm hesitant to speak hard truths or, or to stand up for what I know is right. There are streaks of, of selfish behavior in my life. And my first instinct is not only to hide those things from the view of other people, but often even to avoid mentioning them in my relationship with God, right? Hoping that they'll go away, hoping that I won't have to, to face them. But of course, they don't go away. They just remain in hiding, right? They, they lurk in the shadows of who I am and my own soul. And they make it very difficult to be in fellowship with, with individual people or with God himself, right? When these things clutter up our souls and our persons. And we have to protect, I have to protect that hiddenness. I wonder in your own life, when, when you find the darkness in, in your own person, when you do things that you are, are regretful of or ashamed of, right? how does that impact your fellowship with one another? How does that impact your relationships with others? Is there a way in which that relationship feels like you're, you're hiding part of who you are? John gives us this first part of, of bad news in verse 6. But then he goes on to speak about a, an even greater dimension of bad news. A space in which if, if we allow sin to hide in darkness long enough, if it settles in, if it normalizes in our lives... 
it turns into something that's even worse than that initial fear and shame that accompany sin. He says that, that over time, sin also has the power to make us indifferent to it. Right? Sin can become blasé. It can become no big deal. John warns us that there is something lurking in our hearts, hiding in our hearts, that, that subtly but slowly can give way to self-deception. Look at verses 8 and 10 in this passage. He says, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is no longer in us. And he adds to that in verse 10. When we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. There's sort of this double dose of bad news in those two verses. And I think that that self-deception that John's speaking about, that, that denial that we even struggle with sin, or have sin, or or have brokenness in our lives, takes different forms and shapes. Probably the one we're most comfortable identifying is that self-deception out there in the world around us, right? In, in secular settings, quote-unquote, where we take what is permissible and, and we, we, we claim it's righteous. Right? We see in the world around us an increasing discomfort with even the language of sin. Right? The idea that, that something could be fundamentally wrong in a choice we make for ourselves. Right? The assumption that if it doesn't hurt someone else, it's okay for me to choose it. And in doing so, right, there is, in effect, a, a saying, we, we have no sin. Sin no longer exists. Sin is something of previous generations, but, but not ours. But that's not the only place in which this kind of self-deception surfaces. It actually surfaces within the church as well, within the lives of Christians. Right? And we, we have plenty of evidence in, in sobering headlines and news stories of abuse that has taken place in the church and scandals that have taken place in the church. We have evidence that it's easy to use our standing in Christ, our standing among fellow believers, to quietly excuse right, sinful attitudes, sinful actions, places of blindness in our own lives. So that in the name of Jesus, we begin to baptize things that have no place in the presence of God's righteousness and justice and holiness. And we begin to call what is darkness light. John says if we do that, if we become comfortable with sin in our own lives, we, in effect, make God to be a liar. Verse 10. Right, what things have I gently excused in my own life? Because I didn't want to reveal, I didn't want to bring it into the light. And so over time, it just becomes normal, it becomes part of my everyday reality. We have a, a history of hiding from sin, John says. If, if we have that kind of history to the extent that at some points we actually deny it's even any longer there, right? we don't even notice the sin, then how are we to respond? How do we follow Jesus from that place of hiding or even apathy? 
How do we move past the bad news? And gratefully, John shares a double dose of the gospel as well here in these verses. And he shares what has the power to disarm that darkness, to disarm the power of sin and shame over us. Look at verse 7 with me. John says, if we choose to walk in the light, as God as is in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John, I think, is describing what it's like to step out of the darkness. And it is, it's a choice. It's, it's a direction we set our wills. But he describes that when we choose to do that, we step both in, into fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Or we enjoy a kind of relationship that, that we no longer have to hide part of who we are. We no longer have to figure out how to live a life ignoring or, or working around our brokenness and sin. But instead, we step into the light of God's presence, and we allow ourselves to be seen. Seen not just in what looks good and what we're proud of, but even seen in the places that we struggle. But that being seen is actually a way to overcome the power of guilt and shame. And God invites us into the light with each other, but as he does that, he invites us into the light of his own presence. To see ourselves as he sees us. But a lot of times we get, we get hung up on taking that first step. Right? Because if you're like me, you fear the, the humili humiliation or the, the rejection of, of stepping into the light and, and naming who you are, what you've done. I'll give you a, a silly example. A couple of weeks ago, I realized um, I had a dentist appointment that I had rescheduled twice because of conflicts in our family calendar and schedule. And so I had, I had rebooked it. This was the third time I was supposed to go in to see the dentist. And the morning that the appointment came, we were busy. We were getting the kids on the bus. And suddenly, I got a phone call. I saw it on my, my missed calls. And I realized I had completely forgotten the appointment. I had completely missed it. It was already passed. And at that moment, I got that, that sinking feeling, right? Like, oh, man, I, I blew it. <laughs> and in that, in that moment, there was a, a few minutes where I, I actually contemplated just sort of ignoring the voicemail, right, to, to call the receptionist back, just to blow it off, to give it some time, right, hoping it would go away. But after a few minutes, I, having thought better of it, realized, okay, I probably need to be an adult here and call them back. But I, I, I dialed the, you know, hit the return dial on, on my phone. And as it was ringing, I even found in the back of my head thinking, all right, what kind of excuse can I give them? Right? What can I tell them so that I don't look like a, a disorganized schmuck right, that just totally blew off an appointment? But there wasn't enough ringing to, to figure something out. So as soon as the receptionist picked up, I just said, I'm sorry, I missed my appointment this morning. I don't have an excuse and I'm sorry that I've made your day more complicated. And that, that didn't feel very good to name and to own. But as it turns out, it was, it was far better than feeling cruddy for the rest of the weekend about blowing this off or not acknowledging the fact that I, that I had missed it. And it, it was actually better than sort of 
pretending it didn't happen and then sort of losing a little bit of credibility in that relationship. With someone I don't see very often. But the receptionist calmly listened to me and offered me another appointment later in the day. My point, that's, that's a very small example. Right? There, are, there are bigger things in our lives that are, are much harder to bring into the light. My point is that returning to the light is a choice, right? one we make, and one that usually feels awkward at the first step. But in doing that, that, that choice avails us of, of power and benefit and strength that John says helps us come out of, of hiding, come out of that place of, of deadness of heart, and remain in the light with one another and with God. So that we can name our own stuff and be loved. We can acknowledge our sin but not be defined or be determined by it. And John says that the way in which we come back into the light, we make that choice, but as we do that, as we acknowledge that, as we step back into the light, what we can be hopeful about is how God sees us and how God receives us in that moment. He says, because when we choose to walk in the light, we have full assurance, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Right? As we stand in the presence of God's perfect light, he doesn't condemn us, he doesn't drive us away. Instead, he begins to do that deep work of cleansing, and healing, and restoring. Drawing us deeper into his love for us. If you want a, a story picture of that, read John 4 and his exchange with the woman in Samaria. I think that's a beautiful picture of what John is describing here. So we stand in God's presence then. We have power to disarm that desire for sin power to disarm that shame and guilt that we experience through that act of confession and trust. And in verse 9, John promises, he says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us of all unrighteousness. And I think that's why back at the start of this letter, he, he describes Jesus as this fully human person, Jesus knows the extent and the fullness of our humanity so that he can inhabit it, he can embody it, and he can restore it and heal it. And as we come into the light, we can be restored into the image of God's Son. We're not perfect yet, as Jesus is perfect. The way toward Christ-likeness is to keep bringing those imperfections back into the light, not hiding them, but trusting God's presence with them. Commentator Gary Burge, who's written a, a commentary here on 1 John, says this. He says, to walk in the light of Jesus is humbling, but it is also healing, renewing, and invigorating. And over time, as we commit to that habit, that habit of our heart, Right, the, the good news that John proclaims in this passage becomes louder than the bad news. Right, it, it silences that bad news, and, and it increases our ability to hear the gospel of Jesus. So here's, here's a, a do question for you this week. 
What's one embodied way, something you can physically do, whether it's taking the time to pray, whether it's, it's going for a walk, whether it's talking to someone, whether it's acknowledging something to someone. How could you choose to step into the light of God this week? Right, what would, what would one action be? It might take 30 seconds. It might take you 30 minutes. I don't know. But prayerfully consider what's one action you could take to move out of a place of hiding into that place of being seen by God and by others who love you. Something I would encourage you to reflect on. Let me pray for us. Lord, may we see your light as a gift. May it disarm our fear and stuckness. And may it move us closer to you and to one another. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.